give the people what they want from People's Dispatch and Globetrotter. I'm Prashant from People's Dispatch. I'm Zoe from People's Dispatch. I'm Vijay from Globetrotter, coming to you live every Friday from the People's Dispatch Facebook page and later as a podcast. We shall overcome. We shall overcome. Uh, hi friends, welcome. Uh, today is the birthday of a very great Palestinian revolutionary and um, I suppose some of you hardcore people like us, intrepid reporters, no holiday for us, always on the job, always on the job for you because we give the people what they want. Um, Prashant, good morning, good evening, good afternoon. Zoe, Prashant and Zoe are from, Globe, from People's Dispatch and I'm Vijay from Globetrotter. This is Give the People What They Want, our seventh episode, which is quite symbolic, um, coming to you live every Friday at various times in the global dial. Um, it's an important show that we have for you today uh, because, of course, as we told you last week, we are now a podcast. Uh, you can listen to us at all the usual places. And, of course, you can you know watch us live on Facebook, which is... Um, what we hope we hope you're doing right now uh, we're coming to the end of 2020 probably in our lifetime well hopefully this is the strangest year we've ever lived through i i mean i'm 53 years old i feel i shall live for at least 20 more years and i hope i don't have a repeat of 2020 seriously hope not some good things this year not everything has been you know uh, stupendously horrible uh, some good things will come to those. But I wanted um, Prashant to go first to you because this is an important period for Sudan. It's actually an important right. period for Eastern and the Horn of Africa, the whole region. Take us to Sudan for a little bit, Prashant. Right. So uh, the important date here is December 19th, which is the second anniversary of the Sudanese revolution. And this is actually a very essential uh, uh, and globally, it's a very essential process, something that has not really been reported in the sense it should be. Because I think that I've saw something we discussed last week is how when huge movements happen, we tend to report it as just masses of people. Whereas there are so many complicated dynamics, there are so many internal processes that are taking place. Uh, the people expressing themselves in various ways, which don't really get reported. So it's been two years since the first protest broke out on December 19th, 2018. And this was a remarkable protest because it managed to overthrow the government of Omar al-Bashir, who had been in power for decades, of course, and who's right now being charged by the ICC. But at the same time, it's also remarkable because after Bashir left, the military, basically the military junta took over. And they tried to sort of establish themselves. And they've actually succeeded. You can't say that they haven't. But the pressure from the people has been continuous. The people's movements has been continuous against the military junta. There's been repression. There was a massacre in 2019, for instance, for which justice still has not been delivered. And last week, that's December 19th, when the people took to the streets, one of the key demands was that there be justice for those who were killed in that massacre. But it's also been the fact that uh, the people's movements, people's organizations, trade unions have been continuously on the ground pressurizing uh, 
the militia to make sure that the promise of the Sudanese revolution is kept. And in fact, a lot there has been a lot of developments in recent months, many progressive forces saying that there is a dire need for a course correction at this point. Because what they're saying is that, you know, there has been a deviation. The, the powers that be, the military junta, centrist political parties, even some of the armed rebel groups which are fighting against the government earlier, there's been some kind of a pact between them to sort of maintain the status quo. And the progressive forces have been uh, continuously demanding that, you know, this will not do because they've, they've had a much wider, much vaster policy framework based set of demands. Some of it, of course, to do with foreign affairs, some of it to do with uh, domestic issues, the kind of policies they want to implement. So this has been a very cent a key process in the whole region itself. And I think I remember last time we talked, of course, about the 10th anniversary of the Arab Spring and how at that point, I mean, we talked about Egypt, we talked about, say, which is, of course, in a complete mess right now, Tunisia, which again, going through a difficult time, even Algeria, which had protests in the same time as Sudan going through a difficult time as well. So Sudan that way has been a very interesting, uh, say it's been, to call it a tussle would not be the right word. It's been both sides, the military junta, the forces of status quo actually pushing in a particular direction. For instance, they did have that equation with Israel also, which uh, under the US government, there was a normalization attempt. And this has been very heavily opposed by the people's forces, by the trade unions. So there's definitely continuous movement on the street, a case where uh, the people have not gone back after the overthrow of a dictator, which is what you know the usual narrative is. Okay, dictator overthrown, story done. But they've continuously been uh, pushing for a completely different way of constructing the country itself. And it remains to be seen how it will turn out because more and more progressive forces are taking a far more critical and almost antagonistic stance to the current system. There's a legislative council, which was one of the original promises of the revolution that is soon to be set up. And that will play a very vital role in controlling the power of the military junta. And that setting up of the legislative council has been very key, a key demand for these progressive forces, including the Sudanese Communist Party, which has really been very actively involved. The Sudanese Professionals Association, a prominent trade union or a conglomeration, which is now split, but again, with quite a few radical voices also. So this definitely, I think, is one of those processes that we need to sort of keep tracking and keep watching out for because in many ways, it really does not get the attention it really deserves. You know, the way you put it was so well, uh, which is that this is, in a sense, also a replay of Egypt, except that I, I'm sure that the Sudanese left, uh, trade unions and so on have taken lessons, have seen what happened in Egypt because the return of the military via CC still in power, no problem, just gave, given the Legion d'Honor award by Emmanuel Macron, so-called liberal, um, I think one of the interesting things is, you know, you never make the same mistake twice necessarily. And I can feel the Sudanese looking north, looking at Egypt, saying not in that direction. I mean, looking north, looking to Egypt, uh, we are actually, if we just switch continents for a second, um, I'm, I know the, one of the things with give the people what they want, guys, is that it's whiplash. I mean, we go here and there and here and there, but... That's the nature of global news. Um, at People's Dispatch, you ran a fantastic, very informative piece by Jose Carlos Iarena, um, 
uh, about what's going on in Peru. I mean, Peru, uh, I mean, I, I just followed it briefly. I remember in November, there was a parliamentary crisis, crisis of politics. Now there's been an agricultural crisis. Farm, farm workers have, in a sense, what in India we call get out. They've, you know, enclosed, tried to uh, close down Lima. Um, Zoe, you, of course, follow South America, Latin America so closely. Jose Carlos's piece was excellent. But uh, tell us a little about this multiple cascading set of crises in Peru. Yeah, I mean, right now, uh, since the 22nd, um, since the 21st, sorry, uh, hundreds of agricultural workers have been on strike, have been on the highways uh, to demand their rights um, and to demand that the national government and the Congress uh, fulfill the agreements which they had made in earlier December. Um, essentially, I mean, I really encourage people to read the article that Jose Carlos wrote because it gives a really good outline of kind of the historic demands of workers in the sector. Um, he actually points to, you know, a law that was passed under Alberto Fujimori, who was of course a dictator um, in the 90s. And uh, this law essentially and I think this is an interesting point to give a little parenthesis. I think right now it's uh, an interesting moment in Latin America is the shaking off of the constitution or the attempt to shake off the constitutional, uh, the constitutions that were imposed during dictatorships and all of the legacies that they leave. So this is another point of workers rising up and saying this law was passed during a time where there was, you know, an attempt to impose neoliberalism and an attempt to kind of put all workers' rights aside to ensure maximum profits. And so what he was saying with regards to agricultural workers is that there are a lot of provisions in this law that allow for slave-like conditions for these workers um, who are working to, uh, you know, in agro-industrial companies, which these companies, of course, are oriented towards exportation and, you know, are quite competitive in the market, yet they haven't seen any change in their um, conditions. And all of the justifications for giving, you know, for example, uh, temporary contracts, not paying into the healthcare system, um, having tax benefits for these companies was all given under the justification that these companies need to grow, these companies need space, need time. Workers, on the other hand, of course, haven't been given any slack and these companies are, you know, profiting massively. And what's interesting is that this protest happens, these workers on the road, on the streets, demanding their rights is happening in this moment where kind of, as you mentioned, these crises are converging in Peru. Um, and so, you know, we have, of course, the pandemic, which has across the world and across Latin America in these deeply neoliberal uh, countries, um, has brought in inequality, has brought in kind of the conditions of basic survival to a, to a tipping point. And in Peru, there were communities, there were millions of people who were without running water for months during the pandemic. Um, there have been, you know, the conditions under which people are surviving are very bare minimum. Um, a lot of workers in the informal sector. And so all of these things are kind of coming to a crux. And then of course we see in November, the Congress, which we you know, spoke about in some of the first episodes, has, which is ruled by, I mean, their interests of maintaining their corrupt practices, uh, immunity from, the, from charges, um, you know, of course, commits the parliamentary coup. And now when the workers are demanding that they pass a law that ensures basic rights for them, they're unable to do it. So 
they were supposed to have a session yesterday after you know days of pressure on the highways they were supposed to pass a new agrarian law um, there wasn't quorum the economic commission did not have quorum and they were not able to pass a law so these workers are you know it, this is a christmas is a huge holiday in latin america a lot of you know majority uh, christian countries big holiday these workers you know are not going to be able to celebrate so i think um it's a really important moment and hopefully, you know, they'll be able to continue pushing and the Congress will be able to pass a law to give them the basic rights. But I think Jose Carlos also pointed out that this is a moment, you know, workers, are, farmers are rising up in Peru, they're rising up in India. Um, and just, this is the moment to demand our rights because we're, we have nothing left to lose. You know, this idea of demanding rights, seeking justice, I mean, um, look, uh, this is, we've been into this. This is a period when the United Nations celebrates an important uh, anniversary and so on, the UN Charter. Um, okay, I think we all accept that the UN Charter is a fundamental document in the world. Well, the US president at the end of his tenure customarily pardons people. You know, this has become a, a significant event, annual event. And I know lots of people were trying to get Donald Trump to pardon Julian Assange and Edward, uh, Edward Snowden and so on. Yes. Now, Assange is not a US citizen, but he has been charged in the United States. Well, in the middle of all this, Mr. Trump decides to pardon these Blackwater mercenaries who conducted a massacre in Iraq in uh, Al Nasur Square in on September 16, 2007. I mean, you know, I know this place. Uh, I, I, you know, I understand uh, that war, the brutality of that illegal war. You know, 17 odd people died in that war, including a nine-year-old boy, Ali Kinani. Um, you know, I mean, I'm tempted. I have a list of the names of the people. You know, I'm just tempted to read out their names, but we don't have time. Uh, but at least let's remember this nine-year-old boy, Ali Kinani, killed by Blackwater. You know, there was investigation upon investigation, and everybody was clear that this was a massacre, that there was no reason for these mercenaries to start shooting. In fact, the United Nations, that's why I brought up the UN, the United Nations had a report, a two-year inquiry, had a report, a two-year inquiry, where they found that this use of mercenaries in an active war zone is just not appropriate, you know, that they, they work under, um, you know, their uh, operating uh, license, as it were, is very loose, and they are not as well trained and so on. This doesn't mean that actual troops don't conduct massacres because we have enough evidence of that. So let's not be fooled by that. But they pointed the finger at Blackwater and two years after 2007, 2009, Iraqi parliament, you know, basically abrogated the US-Iraq status of, of forces agreement, which is why the US pulled out. By the way, it's a misleading thing to say Obama pulled the troops out of Iraq. The Iraqis threw the Americans out effectively in 2009. I think that's important to say. But here are these Blackwater soldiers, mercenaries, who massacred 17 people plus a nine-year-old, and Trump has pardoned them. I mean, it just tells you a little bit about the attitude of the US government towards justice, towards the families of the 17 people who've been killed, the over 25 people wounded. None of them received justice. It was very vulgar, actually. The US military offered Ali Kenani's parents $10,000 at the time as blood money compensation, blood money, effectively. Very, very unfortunate uh, behavior. And 
you know, I know that people are upset by this, and I, I know that. Um, in uh, the United States, there is pardoning of war criminals, or at least alleged war criminals. I would like us to return to Colombia, because there, the war criminals, the actual narco traffickers, they don't get arrested at all. They don't need to be pardoned. In fact, uh, the government of Ivan Duque Zoe uh, didn't arrest narco traffickers, didn't arrest people who've conducted massacres, and we have lists of those massacres. They arrested three other people. What's been going on in Colombia? Yeah, so I mean, last week we spoke about the three peasant leaders who had been arrested, um, charged with aggravated rebellion, you know, a whole sort of case was built up around these leaders that they were so dangerous. Um, the attorney general really, I mean, you saw it in the media, three heads of the guerrilla were captured. Um, but essentially, I mean, over the last week, people's movements won a great victory. And I just wanted to highlight this because last week we did speak about the case um, after sustained mobilizing, um, you know, an incredible legal defense by their lawyers, have to point that out, you know, just highlighting the deep commitment of these leaders to their communities, to movements for change, to movements to demanding justice. The judge in the case, which they also highlighted, was a humane judge, a judge who, who didn't necessarily respond to the interests of people like Ivan Duque, of people like Alvaro Uribe, who have been, you know, pardoning narco criminals for the past decades and incarcerating um, social leaders. But this judge understood, okay, these these are social leaders, and we cannot, we can't continue to criminalize them. And the judge ruled that they will be defending their case. The case hasn't been dropped, of course, the attorney general has not dropped the case, but the judge did rule that they will be defending themselves in liberty. Um, and it's important to highlight that the use of preventative detention in, the, in Colombia, I think we also see it used across the world, especially in Palestine with administrative detention of just holding people as long as you can to break their spirit, to break their family spirit, to break their organization spirit um, until you realize it's no longer legal to do so and you're forced to uh, release them. Um, so this mechanism is used globally, but of course in this case they were not able to. So they will continue to fight their case, but they will not be uh, in prison. So it's a really big victory. I mean, I, I, let, let me just point out of course that Ivan Duque is the leader of a racketeering organization uh, mm -hmm. that seeks to overthrow the government of Venezuela. I mean, they essentially, are racketeering. This is a conspiracy against the UN Charter to overthrow the government of Venezuela, formerly known as the Lima Group. What Zoe, you and I, in an article we published this week, we suggested they should rename the Lima Group and call it the Bogota Group, uh, because Ivan Duque spends more time obsessing about what's happening across the border in Venezuela than governing in his own country. And we're back to peasant leaders, aren't we? The three that were arrested, well, they have other things they do in their lives, but they are also uh, organizers of the peasantry, very much like the people in in Peru who are, you know, standing up for the rights against slavery type conditions, correct? I mean, Jose Carlos article points out that there's slavery type conditions in Peru. Um, it's not just, you know, for greater, you know, wages or whatever. Well, Prashant, listen, let's stay with this whole agrarian issue because we've got peasants in Peru on an uprising, a very important uprising. People should keep following what's happening there. We've got Ivan Duque basically going after peasant leaders in Colombia. And then 
this fifth week in India of the farmers' revolt, what I think is the most significant uprising of the year around the world. Um, bring us up to date uh, or up to speed, really, uh, Prashant, with this farmers' rebellion in India. Absolutely, and uh, like you said, it's uh, the agitation started at the end of November. And what's interesting is that, uh, on the one hand, there has been a sustained effort by the government to continuously point out that these farmers are being misguided. So that's been like a single point narrative. On the other hand, the farmers are there. They've been establishing their own social media channels. They've been they've been controlling the narrative. They've been working with others to basically say that don't go around saying that we are misguided. We are raising an argument. You know, address that. And what's interesting right now is that today, uh, farmers from the state of Maharashtra, which is around 1,300 kilometers away, they they reached the Delhi border. Delhi is where the protests are taking place. They reached the Delhi borders in a caravan. And these many of these farmers are actually veterans of the Kisan Long March of 2018, which many of our viewers might remember was an iconic protest through the state of Maharashtra. The farmers at that point entered the commercial capital of India, which is Mumbai. And it really shook the country because, you know, they had, again, very basic uh, demands regarding the amount of prices they were getting, regarding the waiver of farm loans, which were really oppressing them. And these veterans, many of these veterans of that march, traveled 1,300 kilometers in very cold conditions, mind you, and reached Delhi to basically tell to express to the rest of the country that this is not, you know, the government narrative of this being a protest of some farmers in one region of India is not true. And this is actually the protest of farmers across the country. And the fact that you cannot go around saying that even today, the prime minister, I think, said in a speech that people were being misled, that you cannot go around saying that tens of thousands of people are sitting and making very concrete arguments, very reasonable arguments, you cannot just go around spreading rumors about vested interests and being misled, especially, you know, if you claim to be a democracy, it's your duty to address the concerns of farmers. And it's actually very inspiring, quite a lot of excellent coverage by NewsClick, uh, the reporters on the ground, they're both on video and on text. There's a lovely article on the People's Archive of Rural India about two women who were part of the 2018 protest who also joined this protest and talking about their experiences and their demands. And what comes out in all these accounts is basically this point that uh, despite whatever the ruling forces basically talk about, you know, uh, the people not knowing what they want, the truth really is that at the end of the day, from the ground, whether it be Sudan, whether it be Peru, the demands of the people are very, very crystal clear. So that's where we are at. And I think the farmers' protest is definitely going to continue for the next couple of weeks as well. I just want to emphasize for people, the um, news organization you mentioned is website is newsclick.in. Um, Newsclick, of course, has been going for, uh, you know, longer than People's Dispatch, but has really become the most important place if you want to get news from India about struggles, whether it's trade union struggles, peasant struggles, struggles of the urban poor. Um, you know, I think it's, it's a key place because the reporters have really dug deep in to go in and cover struggles. You know, a small strike here uh, is in need of coverage and they do that. They don't just cover the big things. So I really, 
would like people to go to newsclick.in, support their work, have a look, uh, you know, share it and so on. I'm glad you brought that up. The other place you brought up, of course, was the uh, People's Archive of Rural India, which was founded by our friend P. Sainath, uh, an incredible resource, uh, including a rural songs, incredible array of rural songs and so on. Well, I mean, this farmer's revolt, uh, Zoe Prashant, I mean, not only in India, but also in Peru is really lifted my spirits. I mean, we start a year, well, almost immediately the pandemic strikes, uh, almost immediately, March 11th, the pandemic is declared. But on the 30th of January, already the WHO says that this is a, you know, it's extraordinary concern and so on. Uh, right from the beginning of the year, and then we are ending the year, not so much, at least me, focused on the vaccine, more focused on these agrarian rebellions, because these are real. I mean, governments can say what they want, but people are very annoyed about the direction that policy has taken against the entire process of farming, corporate farming, not for them. Meanwhile, of course, we had talked a little about the local elections in Kerala, and I just want to say, and you know, about how yesterday, or today, in fact, um, in the town of uh, Trivandrum, um, the uh, city council or the corporation has a hundred um, seats. The Communist Party has 52 of them, and they've just decided that the mayor of the city of the corporation will be a 21-year-old student by the name of Arya Rajendran. Now, she's not the only 21-year-old elected to local government in Kerala. A range of young people, a lot of them young women have come in on the banner of the communist movement of the left democratic front and so on. It is so completely inspiring. And they won not because, you know, of like rhetoric or anything they put the work in as student leaders as youth leaders they were during the pandemic part of organizations that gave relief to people you know one of the candidates reshma she had a diary she became famous in her ward she would walk around house to house taking people's complaints down i mean what an extraordinary story how could you not feel hopeful correct absolutely i think uh uh, the year is it's been more it's been more of movements and struggles progressing in spite of the pandemic and you know i think even for us while writing about this over the year in february and march the question was always like to trade unionists to activists was like how do you think you're going to organize during the pandemic and what we saw for instance in the us in may in thailand in south africa in brazil across the world is basically in, in France for that matter, Poland, is that uh, despite all the restrictions, despite all the attempts by governments to suppress these protests in the most difficult of circumstances, unemployment, of course, uh, say you know, salary cuts, despite all that misery, people have still continuously come out on the streets. And I think that's a very integral part of who we are as people ourselves. So that's really a source of hope. Zoe, what do you feel? Are you feeling good about this year now? Yeah, I mean, I think, yeah, I think we have to take the only thing we can come out with is hope because otherwise, <laughs> what do we have? I think especially, I mean, from Prashant's point beyond, I think also the, the street protests, what we've also seen is enormous signs of solidarity. So movements, you know, have not only been organizing for their rights, but they've been organizing for their communities and not in the kind of like, 
utopic way, but really, I mean, I think looking at the landless work, rural workers movement in Brazil, for example, since March, they have been organizing, uh, you know, organic food baskets for communities in need, um, community kitchens, distributing direct hot food to people who are, I mean, Brazil has horrible rates of in the big cities of uh, people uh, in state of homelessness, um, extreme precarious conditions of labor. And so that hit right at the time of the pandemic as well. And so we've seen a lot of people in desperate situations and the movement there has been able to really mobilize, organize and get food to people who need it. You know, realizing this is, this is the priority right now. You know, making sure that people survive. And of course we see this in Brazil, we see this in countries across the world, of course in India, of course, you know, many examples of this. And I think that's also something to really take hold of is that this deep solidarity that people continue to express that people are, you know, despite all of the inhumane conditions that we're living, despite, you know, ridiculous discourses from politicians saying that they're, you know, thinking of the people. And of course, you know, we're getting $600 in a direct deposit maybe um, in the US, for example, but people's movements have been there to say, no, this isn't enough. And we are going to, while the state is refusing to uh, fulfill fill this vacuum. And of course, in cases like Kerala, we see this is what we should be aspiring towards. When Venezuela, we see this is what the state should be doing. But meanwhile, people's movements will rise to the challenge and they will show kind of what is the way forward and how to be true, humane people in solidarity. So I think that's for me something. You know, we have an interesting profession, the profession of journalism. Uh, for decades and, and longer, of course, uh, the majority of uh, our tribe of journalists have had to surrender to reality. This was, a, um, in a way, a imperative of the places you worked for. You know, there, there was a kind of cynicism in the newsroom among reporters, like, well, look, you know, you can have all the hopes you want, uh, you just have to, you know, deal with the fact that this is the way it is, folks. You know, it's not going to get better. Just report it as it is. You know, don't don't think too much. Don't feel too much. One of the reasons I really like the company that I'm keeping with the two of you is that uh, we are trying to bring the heart back into journalism. People's Dispatch has a beating heart inside that damn website. So, <laughs> I mean, I just feel like it's so great that we, we come together every Friday because our reporting isn't governed by, um, you know, as I said, the surrender to reality. We don't want to surrender to reality. You know, we want to hope and, and imagine something better. And, and, you know, and that's why we're so happy to join you every Friday. Um, on give the people uh, what they want. Today is, of course, the birthday of that uh, ancient Palestinian revolutionary. Uh, he didn't surrender to reality. I mean, he had some advantages with him. His dad was God. So that, I guess, is a little bit of an advantage. But remember, he also understood that uh, the world was a very difficult, dangerous place, hierarchies, hatreds, and so on. And he wanted to bring love into the world. Uh, he wanted to bring compassion and love into the world. And we as reporters, we want to bring love into our stories. Uh, this is Prashant and Zoe from People's Dispatch. Very much like you to bookmark the website, go there every day because there are stories there every day. I'm Vijay from Globetrotter. The three of us come to you every Friday on Facebook Live but also now as a podcast on all the usual platforms.
we come to you every friday but you can listen to us on saturday and on sunday and other days that's also possible but we come to you live every friday um and we're called give the people what they want uh, have a pleasant pleasant weekend and we'll see you again next week thanks a lot Yeah.